1813, Jane Austen wrote what would become her most famous sentence. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Those are the opening words of Pride and Prejudice, which you may know as a classic novel about five sisters. The person you're hearing is the actor Joel Kim Booster in a recent adaptation called Fire Island as a male Lizzie Bennet. Fire Island is actually a gay adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. It was really popular. And in it, instead of Lizzie Bennet and her four sisters, it's Joel's character and his four best friends. Bitch! I knew I smelled some bottoms! <laughs> Fire Island is the latest in a string of recent Austin adaptations. There's Persuasion on Netflix. There's Pride and Prejudice, the musical in the West End in London. There's a new version of Emma that came out in 2020. And my colleague, Brooke Masters, has been obsessed with Austin since she was a teenager. And she and I have been chatting about these adaptations for months, like every time we bump into each other in the newsroom, we talk about it. So I invited her on alongside her childhood friend, Caroline Bix, who's an English professor. We wanted to get into it. Brooke is so into Austin that someone she dated once knew that the best way to court her was to compare her to her favorite character. There was an extraordinarily charming guy in my life who was, you know, slightly unattainable, slight, you know, definitely was messing with my mind. I told you, this is the guy. Everyone knows this guy. It is the guy. He compared me to Lizzie Bennett. He said, yeah, you remind me of Lizzie Bennett. You know, it was part of the whole thing. I was totally suckered by it. <laughs> and I later learned he had never even read the book. What? Yes. So, and I'm still mad. Yeah, Can you tell? I'm, I'm still mad. Oh, my God. He probably just read the cliff notes. Today, we talk with Brooke and Caroline about all things Jane Austen. 30 years ago, when the two of them were kids, Austen was considered old-fashioned. But now she's thought of as kind of a feminist icon. We get into why she's not only endured, but come back around 200 years later. Then we talk about sports and gender. Last month, the organizers of the Boston Marathon announced that the race would add a new non-binary gender category. My colleague Sarah Germano and I discuss how different sports are handling trans inclusion. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Jane Austen is sometimes known as Lady Shakespeare. She wrote six novels, all of which are based around strong women characters. The three best-known ones are Pride and Prejudice, Emma, and Sense and Sensibility. But we don't just know Jane Austen from her books. Her adaptations are a genre of their own. There have been Bollywood takes, like Bride and Prejudice. There's a zombie take called Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And there are some you may not even know are adaptations, like the cult 90s film Clueless. You're a virgin who can't drive. That's based on the novel Emma. Oh, that was way harsh, Ty. Because Brooke and Caroline's love of Austen began with Pride and Prejudice, that's where our conversation began, too. Brooke and Caroline, hi. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so, Brooke, you and I have been talking about doing this for a while because I know you're a huge Jane Austen fan and you are not alone. <laughs> so my first question is just how you know each other, when you became Austen fans. Sure. Carolyn and I have been friends since kindergarten. Yep. <laughs> and 
I think we must have discovered Austin about the same time because we went to this very precious girls' school <laughs> that was very serious about its literature. And we just started studying her, and she's just fabulous. Yes. And you know what? I would say she she broke the mold for the classical literature that we had been reading, because I believe the first time we read Jane Austen was eighth grade, and it was Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. But previous to that, we had been reading like Great Expectations and Separate Peace and all these guy books, really. And you hit Pride and Prejudice, and finally, you've got this whole passel of girls and sisters. For me, that's what hooked me on her. <laughs> um, because really, before that, my favorite book, I think, honestly, was the Little House on the Prairie series. Like, I had been told I had to stop reading it because I was reading it too much. And I realized what I loved about that book is that it's like this group of sisters, right? And then when it hit Pride and Prejudice, I was like, oh, my gosh, Elizabeth Bennet. She is. She is an upscale Laura Ingalls. <laughs> and she's smart and yeah. nobody's fool. Mm-hmm. And she gets in trouble, actually, for expressing her opinion. Mm. That's the whole point of her. Yes. And none of this sort of Ophelia drowning in the stream crap. You know, <laughs> some guy is rude to Lizzie and she takes it amiss and she is fighting back. In case you haven't read Pride and Prejudice, here's the plot. The novel is about five sisters who need to marry rich to stop their family from falling into poverty. Two rich boys named Darcy and Bingley arrive in the neighborhood and Bingley really likes the oldest sister, Jane. But Darcy is suspicious of the whole thing, and he tells his friend to be careful. What if she's just out for his money? Lizzie Bennet, our protagonist, overhears this, and she gets mad. It was made perfectly clear that nothing changes marriage. Did my sister give that impression? No, no, no. There was, however, I have to admit, the matter of your family. Our want of connection. Mr. Bingley didn't seem to vex no, himself about that. that. How, sir? It was the lack of propriety shown by your mother, your three younger sisters, even on occasion your father. But over the course of the book, Darcy actually does a lot of good stuff for the family. So despite themselves, Lizzie and Darcy fall in love. So ultimately, finally, Lizzie and Mr. Darcy are able to come together to realize they both were being a little proud. They both were a little prejudiced. Mm. um, And they just had to learn something about each other. The other Austen novel that's adapted a lot is Emma. That one's about a rich girl who likes to meddle in her neighbor's business. If you're watching Clueless, Emma's actually named Cher, and she's a Hollywood rich girl who likes to meddle in her classmates' business. Um, okay, let's talk about adaptations. Which are some of your favorites? Like, if you were to really definitely recommend the best adaptations of mm-hmm. Jane Austen novels, right. I'm hoping Clueless is on there. <laughs> definitely. I mean, oh, yeah. Clu- Clueless is its just fantastic. There's nothing bad about it, and it has cutie Paul Rudd. So, I mean, there's really nothing <laughs> bad. Alicia Silver- Silverstone is hilarious. Um, it's a great send-up of so many different um, aspects of you know, Hollywood culture. And Did I show you the lumped-out Jeep Daddy got me? It's got four-wheel drive, dual-side airbags, and a monster sound system. I don't have a license yet, but I need something to learn on. Boy, they came out of nowhere. It's brilliant, and it captures the essence of that book. And that, to me, is a brilliant adaptation. When you can still hold on to what is the essence of the original, but do something that's so different to it. I have to say, Colin Firth and the the traditional BBC adaptation, six parts, Mm -hmm. virtually verbatim. Yeah. You know, you 
What's really interesting about that one is you really hear Jane Austen's words. Clueless is there are no Jane Austen words. It's just Jane Austen's essence. This one is Jane Austen's words, and Jennifer Yule and and Colin Firth are Lizzie and Darcy, and they will never, no one else will ever be that good, you know. <laughs> not even Kira Knightley. And, I, um, who, not even no. close. <laughs> I also I have a soft spot for um, the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which is an online vlog where this woman is being Lizzie Bennet and reenacting. It's entirely modern, and that's just really fun because she acts out characters and she acts out Mrs. Bennet, who is this fl- there her mother, who's this totally dit- ditzy woman, and she gives her this crazy Southern accent. Um, and that one I really like. Yeah. And I guess the most recent Emma, which again is fairly classical, mm-hmm. um, I think I really like as well because it it captures Emma. What's interesting about Emma is she's really again really bright and really playful, um, but she's also kind of bossy. And it and it manages to be affectionate about the fact that she's bossy. So you right. really see her flaws, but you like right. her anyway. And I would also say people should put Bridget Jones's diary on their list as well, because that is such a brilliant and meta adaptation because it's adapting the Colin Firth, Jennifer Eel, uh, by having Colin Firth return in the role of modern day Darcy. I've put all these adaptations in the show notes. As you can hear, I wasn't joking. There are a lot of them. But I wanted to get to the meat of the question. What makes Jane Austen so enduring and so good? Why do we keep going back to her? So I would love to talk about what you think makes Austen still so relevant. Like, what makes her so popular now? It's been more than 200 years. What's so enduring? Definitely there's that way that she just captures that enduring question about how much should we give ourselves over to this idea of romance and love, which seems can be very dangerous and means being very vulnerable. Um, And how much should we hold on to our beliefs and be who we want to be? And, you know, ultimately what she reveals again and again is it's okay, you actually can be both. (laughs) Uh, And I think there is something really romantic about that idea (laughs) that you can still be yourself and still have love. I think it's also, it understands the problems of class privilege, right? And having blindness. Clueless captured that really well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an idea that increasingly people are interested in. Like, what what does it mean to be either blind to, you know, your racial privilege or to your class privilege and both? Something like Emma, I think that it's going to have a resurgence again, I think, because of that particular theme and that one. I'd, I'd predict that. I think you can't underestimate also how funny she is. Mm-hmm. You know, I gave Pride and Prejudice to my then 19-year-old son who was like, oh, God, Mom, do I have to read, like, your books? <laughs> and he laughed out loud. Um, her descriptions of people and her ridiculous characters, because every book has a couple of really silly, very amusing mm-hmm. characters who are, uh, like, in Pride and Prejudice— Darcy's aunt is the one person uh. with a title. She is Lady Catherine de Bourgh, and she is the snob of all time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, everyone knows that person. Like, it's true. These are all these types. Yeah. Another thing that seems very compelling and, like, interesting that it's still relevant now is that these are old novels where women get center stage mm-hmm. that can still feel a little bit rare. And also, these are women who are, like, following their desires, willing to contradict men, I mean, it's within the constraints of the time, but it still feels a little feminist. <laughs> Transgressive. Transgressive. Yeah. Absolutely. And and what's also really remarkable, I mean, especially in, um, in Pride and Prejudice and in Sense and Sensibility, where, again, you have these groups of 
women, that it allows for an exploration of different kinds of what it means to be female, to mm. be a woman. When you've got multiple female characters, it allows you to, to really breathe and say, okay, what would it look like if you had someone who was sort of that type, but, but also enca- encapsulates other kinds of things and mm. other qualities? There's another thing that Austin's known for. It's that will-they-won't-they they energy. It's part of why Colin Firth's depiction of Mr. Darcy is so iconic. There's so much telegraphing between him and Lizzie, you know, all the way through. It's just so brilliantly acted. And you know they are going to get together, but it's that frisson. It's that, oh, the way they're looking at each other. Um, it's like, so they, they kind of know, they must know, but they're not talking about it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another thing that's incredibly attractive. Here we are in this culture where everything's like, text, text, bup, bup, I'm on Tinder, I'm blah, 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 this immediate mm-hmm. you know, response that you're getting to what someone thinks about you. What's so brilliant about what she does and gives us is like very few words, but so much in there. Mm-hmm. Bringing us to today, it seems like there's this renewed interest in Austin. There's been this big boom in period dramas across the board, Dickinson, The Gilded Age, The Great, Bridgerton. You know, why are we so into this now beyond just Jane Austen, you know, period dramas in general? I mean, I think there's a larger existential issue going on here with this moment we're in where the future isn't looking so great, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and um, the present is pretty sucky, too. Um, So going (laughs) to the past, going to history seems really attractive even mm-hmm. if it's a rewriting of history, at least these are people who existed, mm-hmm. <laughs> who survived and thrived in their time, and their stories are continuing. And I think there's something really um, comforting about that. Yeah. I think also, if you look at a lot of the modern day adaptations, they tend to be, they've improved on it. Like they mm-hmm. add the black characters who were written out of history. They empower the women mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. who have been dismissed as annoying or sidelights or whatever. So right. we've, they've gone back and fixed it. It's an agreed time that we all survived, but they also, it's it's idealized in many ways. Yeah. It's better. Like, I mean, you know, Bridgerton, Queen Charlotte is suddenly, instead of being vaguely darkly skinned and frankly white, she's black. And, and they've included people who got left out. And it's the sense that you can stick them back in there that maybe we can make it work now. I mean, mm-hmm. um, last question for both of you. Are there any Austin interpretations that have not happened yet that you would really love to see? Like, what's your dream Austin adaptation? I have a real soft spot for these different communities claiming Jane Austen. And and the best ones to claim are, are Emma and Pride and Prejudice, because clearly we both like those books best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Caroline and Brooke, this was really fun. Thank you so much for doing oh, this. It was great thank fun. Thank you. It was so much fun. I've linked to everything mentioned here in the show notes. Brooke Masters is the FT's U.S. investment and industries editor. She's also been a columnist, our opinion editor, our company's editor, and so much more. And Caroline Bix has the coolest job title in history. She is the Stephen King Chair of Literature at the University of Maine.
Last month, the Boston Marathon made an announcement. Runners will now be able to sign up in a non-binary category for the upcoming 2023 race. The next day, the London Marathon followed suit, which meant that five of the six biggest marathons in the world now accommodate a third gender category. But the Boston news is big. The difference for Boston is that Boston is the one major marathon in the world that you have to qualify to get into, which Mm. means you are actually, you have to have run a previous marathon under a certain time threshold to get into the Boston Marathon. And it's dependent on your gender and it's dependent on your age. That's Sarah Germano. She's our U.S. sports business correspondent at the Financial Times. And Sarah's been covering how different sports have been grappling with the rules around athletes who aren't cisgendered. Cisgendered, if you don't know, or cis, means people who identify with the gender they were given at birth. This summer, FINA, the World Swimming Federation, banned trans women from taking part in its sporting events altogether. They did this after the American swimmer Leah Thomas became the first trans swimmer to win a national college championship in the women's category. Their reasoning was that it's unfair for someone who was born biologically male to compete against cis women. Other sports have made different calls. Cycling, for example, has said that it would allow trans women to race after they've maintained a low enough level of testosterone for two years. It's messy, though, because criteria, by definition, are not nuanced. But gender is nuanced. And where you come down in this debate, it's almost a philosophical issue. I've spoken to people in the governance space who said that you know, this is among the most difficult issues in sport today, because what you're effectively trying to do is balance a person's human dignity with creating a level playing field. I hate to break it to you, but we are not going to solve the ethical dilemmas that come up in this segment. But I still wanted to wade through the issues at play. Sarah, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lila. Because this is like such a nuanced topic, who is running in the non-binary category? Is it people who don't identify as either gender and trans people? Like, can you sort of clarify to listeners what the non-binary yes. group is? So, yeah. So just just to clarify, there's a lot of there's a lot of terminology being thrown around. Um, non-binary is a, you know, according to human rights advocates, non-binary includes people who, you know, identify as neither male nor female, maybe male and female. It can also include transgender people. So non-binary can be inclusive of of trans people, but they're not mutually exclusive terms. Okay, so non-binary is a term for people who don't identify with one of the two binary genders, which is woman and man. Transgender people identify with a gender other than the one they were assigned to at birth. Cisgender, which we went through, is by far the largest category of people. And the Boston Marathon is basically saying, if you don't identify as cisgender, you can feel free to sign up in this new category. But how do you decide the qualifying times for a brand new gender category that includes so many people, trans men, trans women, people somewhere in between? It's really broad. So for this year, uh, the qualifying times align with those that are available in the women's category. I spoke to someone at the BAA, which is the the Boston Athletic Association, which puts on the race. And they said they're talking with stakeholders now about, you know, what's going to be best practice for determining a qualifying standard. But they will be reviewing, you know, the race results, not only at this race, but at other races, you know, sister races around the world. 
and talking with trans groups and and human rights groups about what will be, you know, the best course of action for determining this. On the surface, all of this seems reasonable, even if it's still in progress. You create a third gender category for people who don't feel like they fit into a male or female category. You let people self-identify or pick their own category. And because the category is new and broad, you pick the lower of the thresholds for entry, the women's threshold, until you can do more research. It seems easy, right? But in the world of elite sports, it's not, because it's so competitive. Athletes are fighting for a handful of competition spots, and the pool of endorsements is really small, too. You know, all uh, every human being, you know, has an intrinsic right to health and liberty and happiness and, and security and, and to be heard and all of this. And I think there are a lot of well-meaning people in sports and, and in other industries around the world who, who want to be inclusive and to, and to celebrate all of our individuality. That said, Lila, you and I, you know, we work together, we hang out. I don't think either of us are, you know, really fast runners or really fast right. swimmers. Like you and I don't have an intrinsic human right to compete in the Olympics. Right. Just because we're human beings. It is, a, at the end of the day, a contest of the fittest, the fastest, the strongest. And I think that's what's making this such an interesting and nuanced conversation because how do you determine who belongs in elite spaces Yeah, at the same yeah. time that you're having a conversation about making sure spaces are inclusive to everyone? The majority of the controversy here is about trans women. Again, that's people who were assigned male at birth but think of themselves as women. And if you were born male and are taking female hormones as part of your transition— the assumption is that you're naturally going to be stronger. So at the one extreme end of it, you have sports like swimming, which are effectively banning trans women um, from c competing with cisgendered women. They've determined it's, it, it's not good for that sport. Rugby has said the same thing, effectively owing to, to safety concerns. And then we have other sports, including soccer, which are taking a a pretty liberal approach um, and, and suggesting that there may be a possibility where, where athletes self-identify with, with the gender category that, that best suits them. And then we have sports like cycling, which are taking somewhat of a middle ground by saying, you know, we will allow the participation of, of transgender women um, and transgender athletes if they abide by a certain framework, which is, you know, they have to go through a period of um, around two years um, from when they begin their transition before they can compete in the women's category in order to, to mitigate the effects of uh, hormonal imbalances. I want to talk about that middle category for a second, the approach that cycling is taking. Some studies suggest that trans women who are just starting gender-affirming hormones can have a 15 to 31 percent advantage over their cis female athletic opponents. And the theory is that after one year, that advantage can decline to about 9 percent. So as of this summer, cycling decided to make trans women wait to compete until they're about three years into transition. But again, here's where it gets more complicated. We've just recently started testing athlete hormone levels at all. Athletes have been asked to submit more biological data over the years, mostly to fight doping. And what we're learning is that cis athletes who don't identify as trans or non-binary sometimes also have hormone levels that don't fit into a range that's considered normal for their gender. So is there even a point in defining a norm? Maybe you've heard of Castor Semenya. There is a very famous athlete 
named Castor Semenya, who's from South Africa. She's won the gold medal in the women's 800 meters at two consecutive Olympics. She's a phenomenal runner. She's a phenomenal competitor. She is a woman with differences in sex development. And while she was not the only woman in this review case by World Athletics, she eventually became the poster child for it. Here's what happened to Castor. In 2009, after winning her first world championship gold, the world track and field governing body at the time made her undergo sex testing. They found that Castor has an intersex condition that causes naturally elevated testosterone levels. And they cleared her to compete again. Because Castor thinks of herself as a woman, has trained as a woman, and looks like a woman in her external development, she was shocked and embarrassed by the sex testing because she never doubted her own sex or gender. So, okay, time goes on. Castor went on to compete for a decade. She won two more world championships and those Olympic medals. But in 2019, the governing body came up with a new set of rules defining the hormone ranges for women's and men's categories. And effectively what happened is World Athletics came up with this very specific set of rules that said, if you are a woman with differences in sex development and you seek to compete in any of the events between 400 meters and a mile, you have to take hormone-suppressing drugs in order to be at a level playing field with other women um, wow. who are in this event. And she appealed and said, you know, this is not a medically necessary treatment. You know, this is not something that my doctors are telling me that I need to do for my personal health. This is clearly like an arbitrary, you know, determination by you to set the standards of competition. And, you know, you're violating my human rights, essentially. Um, mm. And she lost that appeal. It went all the way up to the, the Swiss um, federal Supreme Court. The the effective ruling that they came down with is, you know, while they are sensitive to her claims, it's within the jurisdiction of world athletics to determine what's a fair competition. Castor has not taken drugs to suppress her testosterone, and she's appealed these restrictions to the European Court of Human Rights. But it's worth mentioning that her condition isn't the only one that can cause higher testosterone levels. So was the governing body right to limit what it considers a normal woman's range? Sarah, it's like this is part of the reason why we were so interested to have you on to talk about this, because it's in that space where it's very early. Um, yeah. And as you said, it's one of the hardest decisions that um, uh, that sports officials are making right now. You know, it sounds like a lot of people seem to be putting this debate in terms of fairness versus inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me about that? That's really the heart of this whole debate, right? Sports, especially, you know, what we consider to be the Olympic umbrella of sports, um, you know, track, swimming, gymnastics, cycling, rugby, all of that. These are sports which, you know, aren't the the, you know, multi-billion dollar global industries like football, like American football, like baseball, which command a lot of money and, and um, ample broadcast time on television. There is an underlying desire and need by these sports to be welcoming of the next generation, um, younger viewers and younger participants. And I think having a progressive attitude towards who is an athlete, who competes um, in these events, what will the future of, of these global events look like, you know, motivates them, motivates authorities in these sports to think, like, how can we be as inclusive as possible? How do we make sure that there is a future um, for all kinds of participants in what we would call, like, non-core sports? And then you have 
um, you know, the fairness question of it. These are elite sports. They are exclusive by definition. You know, you can't, you know, just walk up to a world championship in any of these events in gymnastics, in figure skating, in badminton, you name it, and and just say, well, I like playing this sport, so I therefore have a, a, a place to compete against the best in the world. So squaring those two issues of how do we be the most inclusive with these are by nature exclusive events, they are elite events, is what's making it so difficult for authorities in all of these sports to make this determination. Sarah, this was so informative and so thought-provoking and um, interesting. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a tough conversation. But an important one. Yeah. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next weekend is so good. We have the producer of the film Woman King with Viola Davis on the show. Her name is Kathy Schulman. She convinced Hollywood executives to get a historical epic of this magnitude made, and she tells us how. Then we talk about meatless meat, like Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers, which, if you remember, were going to be the future of sustainable eating, and then everyone kind of stopped talking about them. So I asked my colleague Amiko Terrazono on to explain what happened. If you'd like to say hi, we love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. I read all those emails. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can keep out with callouts and cultural conversations and behind-the-scenes photos, all that stuff, on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT. I personally like the FT Weekend in print. It's a really good deal. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link to get the deals. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my first class team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And special thanks go to Manuela Saragossa and Cheryl Brumley. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will find each other again next week. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.